I'm Daniel Levine, and this is the Bio Report. Sablinski believes the drug development process is broken and has sought to reinvent it. His company, Transparency Life Sciences, relies on crowdsourcing to design its clinical trials, makes all of its data public, and employs digital technologies to remotely monitor participants and dramatically reduce the cost of studies. Now, several years into his efforts, we checked in with Sablinski, CEO of Transparency, about the progress he's made what barriers he's encountered, and whether his success is having any impact on the way other companies are conducting drug development today. Tomas, thanks for joining us. Uh, My pleasure, thanks. It's been about three years since we last spoke about Transparency Life Sciences. You were just getting started back then with your effort to remake the drug development process. Perhaps you can begin by describing transparency to our listeners who may not be familiar with it. Sure. So um, transparency is based on three uh, principles. One is um, very obvious from our name. Uh, We are uh, doing uh, drug development, uh, designing and conducting clinical trials in a completely transparent way. Everything that can be uh, from ethical and privacy and legal um, uh, point of view made visible to anyone who wants to see it is visible. So that's uh, transparency. The second component is uh, open sourcing or crowdsourcing, uh, which uh, translates to the fact that we are uh, co-designing uh, our experiments, our clinical trials with as broad as as feasible participation uh, of patients, researchers, and anyone who uh, can and wants wants to contribute. And the third um, component, very important from um, operational um, uh, perspective, is that we are moving clinical trials to patients rather than asking patients to uh, travel sometimes long way to where trials are uh, located. So we're changing the model from uh, brick-and-mortar side visits to um, telemonitoring and digitizing clinical trials. When we last spoke, you you described the drug development process as broken beyond repair. What's broken, and is it fixable, or or does it need to be overhauled from the ground up? So I think um, everyone uh, recognizes that it's... um, it's uh, broken, and uh, so uh, the diagnosis is made the same way uh, almost no matter to whom you talk to. Uh, however, depending on uh, using uh, medical um, parable here, uh, uh, depending on your specialty, uh, uh, which pretty much translates to whether you're, you belong to big pharma, biotech, uh, venture capital, 
uh, or other specialties, um, the, the, the um, treatment prescribed differs. And uh, perhaps uh, uh, because of my own background as a surgeon, I am uh, uh, of the opinion that only radical uh, solutions uh, can save this industry. And uh, I am not uh, interested in uh, prescription written by um, uh, dermatologists or internal medical uh, medicine people, which tend, tend to be uh, point solutions uh, in this space. So um, uh, people are trying to fix uh, one aspect of, of, of current or, or legacy model, and that doesn't bring, and have been trying to do that for a number of years, but that doesn't bring um, necessary uh, results. And what are the necessary results? Perhaps we should start with that. What is the goal of this overhaul? So first, uh, if you look at statistics of clinical uh, trials, clinical research, um, it's devastating uh, to realize that year-on-year um, -year, um, cost of conducting clinical trials uh, goes up by 10%. Uh, and you would think, well, if this costs more, perhaps it's done faster, perhaps we get better results, perhaps we deliver more uh, more medications at the back end um, through FDA approval and to patients. But uh, the irony is the more it costs, the worse it gets. So uh, there is no other sector of the, of the economy that uh, would uh, would, would actually survive, and, and drug development somehow, somehow survives, but I think it's on its last leg. So a systemic solution is needed, and, and a systemic solution needs to bring um, uh, clinical trials to uh, its roots, where experiments were simpler, where uh, patients were not subject to um, uh, something that they, simply from a logistical perspective, cannot uh, agree to, and it needs to be brought to um, some sustainable, sustainable budget. And I think um, my our conservative estimate and estimates of others is that uh, if you improve the system uh, or overhaul the system, it can be done. As, as you mentioned. There, there are three key elements to, to your approach. I wonder if we can take a little deeper dive there, starting with the idea of open data. Why is that important? How does it fit into what you're doing? I think one of the problems uh, uh, with um, drug development is uh, lack of trust uh, uh, of, of, of people who are participants and who are, in fact, uh, at the end of this process, um, customers uh, for and users of products that were that were developing uh, medications, and um, opening up uh, the process of designing and conducting clinical trials uh, to them uh, uh, builds trust and builds uh, their uh, uh, conviction that, and sometimes. Their health and risk that's associated uh, with clinical trials is uh, done in a responsible way and for reasons that they can understand. Um, and that has been um, 
growing problem with the industry. So that's one aspect of it. The second aspect, uh, equally important, but on different dimension, is uh, you, you cannot, um, in modern world, design a product, any product, without significant input of end users. And that's true with simple uh, stuff, such as uh, car that you buy in a dealership. You, 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 you can certainly choose a lot of uh, more and less important aspects of, of what you want in this car, uh, and um, uh, all the way to com complex uh, solutions such as um, enterprise software, where, where people have, have a choice what to do and frequently um, what what to what to what they buy and often participate in design of this product so ironically where it matters most which is medications that you are going to be taking sometimes for life the industry completely turned their back on end users and there were many reasons for 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 this uh, unfortunate um, outcome but that that's the status um, today, it's recognized by um, health authorities, by the FDA. It's recognized also by the industry. The the second aspect you mentioned was crowdsourcing. Who, who makes up the crowd that you're calling on, and and how are you using this to reinvent trial design? Um, it's patients, it's physicians, it's researchers, and the way we uh, we constructed um, this tool to solicit feedback is in a form of what we call protocol builder, which um, asks basic and uh, and also detailed questions on um, clinical trial uh, design, and they range between uh, simple, uh, seemingly simple items such as inclusion and exclusion criteria, demographics of patients going in, all the way to complex complexity of pharmacokinetics, pharmacodynamics, and and, and um, statistical approaches. So we have two uh, versions of protocol builders builder for each of our projects. One is designed specifically with patients in mind and uses language that patients understand. And the the, the other one is for professionals, for researchers, which um, obviously ask certain questions that would be fairly difficult to um, understand by non-professionals. And how do you sort out the good ideas from the bad ones? Oh, um, that is um, something that, uh, fortunately, we do, we do not have to invent. Uh, crowdsourcing or open sourcing has been around uh, for many years now, and it's accepted way of um, conducting business in many uh, many industries. And, and there are different methodologies to do it. But one 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 thing that I need to, uh, need to be made clear is that it's not a voting system in which, uh, um, uh, for example, in our latest endeavor, we design a protocol uh, for rare disease sarcoidosis in uh, pulmonary sarcoidosis, which uh, we are going to the FDA with, I with IND in a couple of weeks. And this was uh, co-designed by... Um, over 200, close to 250 patients and some 50 researchers. And, and it's not done, uh, our analysis is not done the, the, the way that if most people said this, that will, that will go to the protocol. It's looking for refinement of certain uh, points, 
that we, in our uh, initial uh, exposure to those stakeholders, were not sure about how to deal with. And in this particular case, there are several aspects of clinical protocol that are um, controversial. And we're looking also from so-called left-field ideas that somebody will come up with really unusual uh, suggestion and solution. Uh, and then once this is all done, uh, and by the way, we're still doing it manually, but we're working on a on a um, artificial intelligence type of um, system that will be uh, will be aiding this process. Then ultimately, the decision is um, uh, made: what goes in front of regulators in final protocol um, done by principal investigator and a couple of uh, key opinion leaders. So the system that. The end of the system is not very different than what it is now in legacy, in legacy um, uh, structure. It's just that um, it's much broader input that we're, we're getting. Uh, the third aspect that you mentioned was the use of digital technologies for remote monitoring. What kind of savings have you realized at this point, and, and are there other benefits beyond cost savings of, of using this approach? I, I'll start with the context here because it's quite important to remember that when we spoke three years ago, uh, telemedicine was still uh, the word that many people confused with uh, telemarketing, I guess. And now uh, most people understand what telemedicine is, and it's a broad, it's a broad um, uh, uh, concept which uh, includes uh, something as trivial as video uh, consultation, and some specialties are moving pretty rapidly to, um, to to it as a way of delivering healthcare. Uh, so video consultations is, is, uh, is, is easy. Um, and then um, through more and more sophisticated technologies, you can go all the way up to uh, monitoring um, increasingly complex physiological uh, parameters um, because tools, um, devices, um, to collect those parameters are uh, being um, developed and many FDA approved almost on a weekly, weekly basis. So um, it's almost sky is the limit um, what, what one uh, uh, will be able to do. So, <clears throat> excuse me. So that's the context in which we operate today versus three years ago. And uh, uh, we are creating a system and a culture in the company that will enable us to plug in any of those devices or tools that are being developed, not for clinical trials for the most part, but for healthcare service. And I, I can mention many that um, we are either uh, deploying in our uh, currently recruiting and, and um, planned clinical trials, such as um, simple uh, body weight through uh, obviously uh, monitoring vital signs, uh, sleep uh, quality, and uh, remote uh, or digital EKG, and all, um, uh, pulmonary function tests. All these things um, in legacy system require patients to drive or sometimes fly to study centers several um, times in the course of uh, clinical trial, typically every four, every six, sometimes every two weeks. And that's a big barrier for many patients. Now, if you move many of those measurements to patients' home, you obviously reduce patient burden. The cost um, of data 
collection uh, goes down by at least 50 and and uh, probably close to 80%. So patient convenience, quantitative um, benefit of cost, but there is one more aspect that we've just began exploring and experiencing is uh, qualitative benefit. Many of those devices enable us to measure certain things that were not uh, logistically possible in legacy systems. Because if you measure it every six weeks, it would be meaningless. Now, if you can measure it every six hours, then it becomes uh, uh, meaningful and allows us to construct different endpoints in clinical trials. So this is the journey that we just began, and we were discussing certain aspects of this, quant uh, this qualitative benefits in certain therapeutic areas with the FDA and the community. Well, how, how have regulators viewed your approach, and did you face any barriers when you accept Winning acceptance have, have they warmed to this? Um, I, I wouldn't say that the, the I, I, I would I wouldn't say that they warmed to it because they were never cold uh, in the first place. I, I differ uh, in my opinion about FDA versus industry, and I think that the barrier to innovation was not the industry. It was it was excuse for the industry to be innovative to to blame FDA. So um, our first clinical trial that is now in recruiting stage. Uh, we submitted IND, which just, just to give you an example, uh, it's a 12-month trial in multiple sclerosis, which typically in legacy system would, would have 12 site visits. We reduced in our trial uh, this visit to two, the first and the last. In uh, 12 months between first and last visit, everything including um, uh, biometric data is collected at patients' home. Uh, visits are, are conducted via uh, uh, video uh, using nothing more sophisticated than either FaceTime, Skype, or uh, go-to-meeting type of, um, type of uh, tools. FDA uh, accepted this protocol. Uh, open, we have open IND. There were no questions asked. In fact, the letter from the FDA, the trial can proceed, uh, contains certain encouraging uh, examples how to move forward even more forcefully into digitizing clinical trials. So that's our formal interaction. We had another uh, one uh, in the context of um, another trial in inflammatory bowel disease, which was equally um, encouraging, and we had a number of informal um, discussions with with the uh, with the regulatory agency and also participated in industry panels with FDA uh, staffers and all of this is uniformly uh, positive and encouraging and and similar signals although we didn't pressure test it uh, we received um, uh, uh, from Europe I was um, at a meeting in London uh, last week and uh, had a, a conversation with um, high-level official from uh, UK uh, drug approval agency, and everything we were discussing was is ready to go in the in the UK if, whenever we're ready. So uh, there are no there are no barriers to, to it uh, from regulatory perspective as long as you keep everything ethical, transparent, and uh, if it makes scientific sense. You've been able to attract industry partners, including Genentech. How difficult was it to convince industry about your approach? 
Um, so I think this is a um, an interesting um, interesting um, aspect. Uh, we uh, we uh, were contacted by at least five or maybe seven of top ten pharmaceutical uh, companies, and we uh, signed confidentiality agreements with them, and all of them came to us uh, via groups that I think all pharmaceutical companies formed within the last few years, uh, and they have different names. The word innovation in the name of this group. Um, so innovation in clinical trials, external innovation, um, and others. And, and obviously, they all came to us excited about our approach, and we went... Uh, some length in the discussion, and then uh, this group told us, so we will now identify a project, a real project in our pipeline that we could um, use to test your approach. And all of them at this stage uh, uh, decided that it's either too early or too risky, or project, project teams said, well, we really don't want to risk. The only uh, men left standing in this discussion was Genentech, and I give them a lot of credit for it. It wasn't easy internally, we know, for them to sell it, quote-unquote, and um, they went on the record saying that. It took a long time, but uh, here we are, and it's um, actually going to benefit um, both Genentech and us in different ways um, that we learn a lot in the process, and obviously, because we are transparent, uh, I, I, I hope it will also benefit um, uh, drug development and ultimately patients. What we're doing with them, so it is it is um, not it isn't easy. And I completely understand, having been in big pharma for many years, um, how um, difficult it is. Uh, it'll take a long time. Well, what does your pipeline look like today? We have. Um, we have uh, one proprietary project, which is repurposed a generic um, for multiple sclerosis, and it's a very interesting um, uh, commercial potential, in fact, even though it's generic. Uh, we were working on, on uh, a trial that will be done in completely novel way, as I, as I explained. Um, and um, not only reducing the cost of clinical trials uh, per se dramatically, but also um, we will be able to um, collect certain data that uh, typically has not been collected in uh, multiple clinical clinical trials. And, and we we are quite convinced that there will be uh, uh, there will be benefits uh, for patients and, and perhaps. And even investors, which is hard to imagine, uh, that you can actually make the claim with um, repurposed generics. But that's obviously all hypothetical now because we're just starting the trial. The second, um, uh, the second um, uh, trial is a pilot with, with Genentech, which is um, uh, testing novel methodologies of um, doing um, clinical trials in inflammatory bowel disease. Uh, again, uh, testing remote way of collecting data, including, um, which may surprise uh, a lot of people, um, uh, colonoscopy done in local offices uh, so patients do not have to travel to uh, sites uh, where clinical trials 
quote-unquote, located. And then uh, we are um, attached to partnership with Oven Therapeutics, um, New York-based um, drug developer. We are um, in final stages of assembling an IND application that's a new chemical entity uh, that is phase three trial for one rare disease, and we are uh, now uh, testing a second indication, which is, as I mentioned, pulmonary sarcoidosis. And again, here, we're, uh, we're, we've, we've taken um, big benefits uh, from open sourcing or crowdsourcing the protocol, and now we are um, hoping that this trial can be conducted with collection of data largely via telemedicine. And um, the pipeline is also being enhanced now by in-licensing discussions and uh, three or four are active. This would be um, new chemical entities um, to which we um, uh, are aiming to get uh, full or, or, or partial rights. You're currently seeking your first venture round. Why now, and, and how is the money going to be used? We have um, financed the company um, largely um, uh, through. Uh, internal resource uh, resources and um, some revenues from partnerships and uh, it is the stage at which we have a platform uh, that is highly scalable so we can ab absorb um, multiple projects into the into into it and that's obviously limited by uh, cash so uh, we would like to raise enough money to um, be able to um, in-license and run through proof of concept and perhaps beyond several projects. So the proceeds will be used uh, to acquire and uh, develop several new drugs. And obviously, uh, some of this money is going to go into improvement and enhancement of our platform. Uh, which we are happy with, but there is obviously a lot of um, improvement that can be made on the backside, if you will, of uh, what uh, drives uh, both uh, crowdsourcing uh, platform and also the collection of data itself. Any sense that others are taking note of your approach and following? Do you, do you expect to see what you're doing influence drug development more broadly? Um, uh, yes and no. I think um, if you take the three components that we that we uh, believe uh, position us uniquely because of the holistic approach, the systemic solution, uh, you design, you conduct with uh, open source and transparently and telemonitor uh, patients, that's transparency life sciences. Now, there are certain aspects uh, of clinical research process that the industry um, was forced to make more transparent, and one that is obviously uh, quite hotly debated is um, the release of data from clinical trials. Uh, and, and, and strong uh, motivation 
if that is the right word for the industry, in particular in Europe, to uh, disclose data from all trials, including trials that failed. Uh, and I am a uh, um, strong supporter of this. And there is pushback uh, for uh, obvious reasons. So some transparency is introduced into the process. But no one, to our knowledge, is co-designing um, clinical trials the way we do, where everybody can actually see what we do, and the final protocol is on the website. So that is still uh, treated as a trade secret for reasons that uh, are hard to defend, in fact. If you look at, so that's transparency and, and, and crowdsourcing, co-designing. Co co-designing of clinical trials with patients is um, getting um, some traction but mostly not uh, straight from the industry, but from patient advocacy group and from uh, a movement that uh, is probably better described as DYO, do your own science, uh, which I think is very different than what we do because these people um, uh, are, are constructing their own experiments. They're no, not FDA sanctioned and typically they look either in behavioral changes or um, approved drugs or some um, other interventions like dietary interventions. So, but it creates a certain culture of people actually contributing to uh, clinical trials. And the third aspect of it, which is telemonitoring, uh, that is um, clearly on the radar screen of pharmaceutical industries, industry um, uh, however, their approach is, um, again, so cautious that they would um, create point solutions. So they will do a legacy type of trial and put one or two biometric devices where they collect digital data. I think it's a waste of time uh, because it will not bring certain... It, it, it doesn't do really much good uh, because these devices are already FDA approved. So... Uh, for the most part. So I'm not sure what is being tested. The device is not, uh, that doesn't need testing if they're trying to find out whether it is uh, doable in clinical trial anywhere, any, any other, any differently than in healthcare services. You don't need it. You just need, but it is so difficult because it requires changing the whole paradigm how you collect data. So that's why it's so difficult to do by pharma. So I gave you a long answer. Yes, there are there are um, certain aspects that industry is implementing, but no one is doing it in a way uh, that we do. And just wanted to mention one thing about um, a patient co-designing and patients contributing to design of clinical trials. I think um, the um, announcement of uh, Apple research kit that was just um, released last uh, week in, in its pilot is probably most significant announcement in uh, clinical research, clinical development in the last uh, 10, if not 20 years. Yeah. I think it's going to be tectonic shift. Uh, for us, for example, it's, it's, a, it's a fantastic way of um, uh, being able to create a tool uh, that will basically be a clinical trial um, uh, management system uh, uh, that costs, will cost uh, 
uh, a, a small, small fraction of what you are um, forced to pay uh, from commercial vendor or build, build yourself. So we're we're at the at the edge of real, I think, uh, transformation of this industry, and uh, I think uh, transparency life science is very well positioned to uh, uh, to benefit from this fact that it's happening and also to be able to quickly translate it to better and less expensive and faster approved medications. Tomas Zablinski, CEO of Transparency Life Sciences. Tomas, thanks as always. Thank you. Appreciate it. Bye. Thanks for listening. The Bio Report is a production of the Levine Media Group. To automatically download this podcast each week, subscribe to our RSS feed or through iTunes or other podcast manager. To join our mailing list, go to levinemediagroup.com. We'd love to hear from you. If you want to drop us a line or are interested in sponsoring this podcast, send email to danny at levinemediagroup.com. Special thanks to Jonah Levine, who composed our theme music, and the Jonah Levine Collective, which performs it.